Welcome to Between Two Curators, the podcast where two friends and, well, curators discuss art, life, and what or rather who inspires them. I'm Jen. And I'm Cliff. And in this episode, we speak with Nels Abbey, broadcaster, writer, and social and political commentator. Welcome. Nice to have you, Nels. Welcome. It's an absolute delight to be with it's a delight to be here, Jennifer and Cliff. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, it's great to be able to speak with you. Um, you've, you wear a few different hats, Nils, um, <laughs> so we, we kind of want to want to ease it in a little bit um, and uh, maybe hear a little bit about your your background because you you had uh, you had have quite a career as a media executive. Um, and uh, and at some point as well, transitioned, maybe I could say, over to being a, a freelance writer and broadcaster. So I wonder if you could just give us a, a little bit about um, your background and, and maybe some of the interests that develop along that way. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so I have had a fairly uh, varied um, career. Um, so <laughs> actually, I didn't start off as a, in media as a media executive. Well, I kind of did, but I could, when I really started my professional career, I started off as a banker. So I worked in banking for ah. about 10 years, uh, 10, tor- 10 very torturous years, worked my way <laughs> from the, to the pinnacle of the game. So I did quite well for myself. And then I left banking to go and help run an organization, a large media organization. I had an opportunity to go and join a large media organ- organization, which would remain nameless, and go and help them run, help them run it at an executive level. And um, I did that uh, for about the best part of four years. And then, um, yeah, so it was all going very, very well. And then um, after a bit of time, I felt that I wanted to do to get a bit more away from the executive side of things, a bit more into the creative side of things. So I took a step back, and I um, took a step back, left the big organisation I was with, went freelance, and uh, wrote a book. And that book's called Think Like a White Man, which was based upon my um, yeah. experiences in uh, banking and media. But additionally. Um, sorry, so satirical self-help or being an ethnic minority or being a black person in the, in the professional realm is based on my experiences in banking and media. But ultimately, um, yes, yeah, so I went away and I'm doing a lot of uh, creative projects right now and I'm having a good time. Fantastic. It sounds like the transition I probably should have asked rather than media exec to writer was probably from banker to media exec. <laughs> was uh, <laughs> go from from money to creativity. Sounds like the sounds like you had those creative urges um, pulling at you. I I really did. I really did. I I just couldn't I couldn't fight it anymore. I just had to do it, um, which is a silly thing to do when you're about when you're in your mid to late thirties and uh, you're doing quite well financially and you've just had a you just had a baby, your first child ever. And then you think, yeah, let me roll the dice of life and see and see how this one plays out. Let the chips fall where they may. Well, I'm sure I'll land on my feet. Yeah, you got there. Um, I, I, a slight tangent, but do you remember what those first creative urges were? Can you pinpoint, or is it something that you always had in you as a kid, and then all of a sudden you started feeling them more? All of a sudden, you're like 14 years into your career. Yes, yeah, a very good question. I always knew. So I did not choose to go to bank, and I think banking chose me. <laughs> and um, so, or, or, or I should put it more appropriately, media and creativity did not choose me. <laughs> so coming from a uh, from my sort of background, working class, uh, black Nigerian background, or so, your parents aren't good, aren't playing. You've, you, I knew when I was about five years old, I'd go to university, go to university to study. Um, 
some sort of artistic or or creative endeavor or so was out of the question there's only three four career yeah. options as 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 the great genie ashari says there's only four career options for nigerians which is um banker or lawyer doctor engineer or disgrace to the family and i was in no <laughs> dis- the, no desire to be the to be the latter so i became a banker essentially which is probably a mild disgrace because i'm not a lawyer doctor and engineer but um and that was that but the key, but, but when I did graduate, I did look for far and wide for jobs in media, jobs in the creative world, and I just couldn't break in. So I went to go and make myself a, my fair share of money, and that was that. But in terms of my my actual creative urges, I really think I became a. I was always when I was at school as a little boy, I was always a writer. I was a writer hmm. in my school's yeah. press club. I was an editor there or so from when I was about thirteen, fourteen years old. But I just remember one day I was when I was at university. I was told to write a particular article, and um, and it was meant to be about five hundred words long. And um, and when you're about nineteen, twenty years old, five hundred words sounds like a lot of words or so for you to sit down and write. One thousand <laughs> words sounds like eternity. A dissertation sounds like oh my goodness. Just forget it. <laughs> but um, yeah, exactly. So, but I remember I was working in my my publication, and I had to write a five to six hundred page word article, and um, I was watching Twenty Four, and I, was, I enjoyed writing the article so much that I was watching Twenty Four, the the old school original VHS box set of Twenty Four, and I watched the whole thing whilst writing and rewriting this article. And I just enjoyed it so much that I fell asleep between watching Twenty Four and writing with the laptop in front of me and I just woke up continued writing and rewrite and I just knew right there and then that this was for me I enjoyed doing this that this was not work yeah this was I enjoyed doing this Mm. and I thought right there and then that this would be something um I could do well I didn't think it was something I could do I knew it was something I could I enjoyed Mm. so I pursued blogging and everything else but taking things really seriously is um it's it happened about just really about 10 years ago that I thought I had to really do this seriously on a professional level yeah, and taking it so seriously that you, or rather, you know, your character created think uh, like a white man, <laughs> yes. right? Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Doctor Boulay White Law the Third created the this third, very the third. Yep, yep, yep. Crazy guy. Yeah. Crazy guy, full of full of full of sarcasm. Um, could you? Tell us a little bit more. Tell us a little bit more about, like, was there a particular moment when you're like, ah, you know what? I'm going to write this book. Um, or is it always in the making and then suddenly it was released? And can you just, yeah, just tell us, guide us a little bit through. And then obviously we're going to urge everyone to go off and read it. Um, but in, in their millions. Um, so it, what happened <laughs> was this, was that um, it's a really bizarre thing because I, when I was like, working in banking, I was still working in media. So I'll get. I would always pitch. I mean, once or once or twice a week, I would be working. I would be at working in the bank, which is actually an asset management company. And then I would also run around and pitch to newspapers and editors and everything else. Any idea I had. So I'd literally be there, looking to clear a trade or so. At the same time, people are shouting, "We've got to clear this trade right now!" And I'm there pitching to the Evening Standard about about this article about strip clubs in the middle of central London. And no one knew that I was wearing this double life. I was living this double life as a writer. And then, um, and I kept doing that. I was writing about yeah. politics. I write about anything I could do, politics, economics, anything that I just had an idea on. I would write, and I always do it in an impressive way. So I got some work. Um, it was also it was always an embarrassing thing when I would pitch something to say the Evening Standard, which is the London's local paper, 
And I, so I know that when people are going home, they'll open it up and see my face there. And um, I always, <laughs> so whenever that happened, I would always be shivering the next day thinking, I hope no, I hope they're going to tap me on the shoulder and say, pack your bags. But anyway, but what happened was, um, was that, so I was doing my writing work for a long time. And then an opportunity, then a certain thing happened. I was um, a gentleman called Will Self, um, who is a famous British writer. He was stopped. He complained that he was stopped and searched in the bushes in the woods mm. with his son. He went for a walk in the woods with his son, yeah. and he was stopped and searched because they, some person in a high vis jacket, which seems to annoy certain men for some bizarre reason. High vis jackets seem to be a, a real thing that really irks certain men. But it was some sort of person. He just said, "Who are you?" and just did a, almost like a stop and search routine. And then he determined there was his son, and that was that. And he felt quite annoyed, affronted, as in that this was quite an insulting question to ask him. And I wrote an article thinking, sort of just saying that, well, what Will Self went through there for once is what black people, particularly black men, have gone through since childhood. Mm. Yeah. That you're always getting stopped to search. And that was that. And then Will Self saw the article, wrote to the newspaper, and then um, he actually wrote and said that, yeah, that he, he agreed with my article. He thought that it was a fair point. And then... Um, and when he, at the end of it, he just, the paper then sent it to me and I sent it back to him and said, well, that was very nice of you, very gracious of you to say that. And then he responded and said something effect of, oh, yeah, well, um, thank you very much for writing the article that you're very good at, 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 you're very, very good at this sort of thing, at what you're doing over here, and you should keep going with it. And mm. the moment I read that from Will Self, I knew right there and then this had to be real. So then yeah. I knew that I had to go from just writing articles to writing more substantive stuff. That's when I then realized, what could I write about? And I thought, I had about two or three ideas. And the one about being a black person in the corporate world was the one that I really thought was the one that I could do justice. And then, um, yeah, and that's the one I thought I would do. And, um, I mean, long story short, short story long, I, um, <laughs> I just became a dad around the time. And as you do when you become a dad, I quit my job. And then um, I had about, I found another job. So I had about two, three weeks. And I've wanted to go to Ireland. And I just thought I'm going to go to um, somewhere quiet. And um, um, somewhere quiet and peaceful where there'll be no disturbance where I could write. So this was about 2014. And then I, and yeah, so I did just go somewhere quiet and peaceful, somewhere I could concentrate. So I hopped on a plane to Las Vegas, Atlanta, Miami by myself. Oh, of by course. Myself for about. <laughs> <laughs> two weeks and then, <laughs> you'll be surprised as, how, as to how good um um vegas yeah, vegas in particular was for writing so and then because uh, they just pump oxygen into these hotel rooms and they pump oxygen into hotel rooms you can't sleep they want you to go to the kid to go and gamble i don't gamble i don't drink and i certainly am in no mood to womanize and everything else so, so that's i don't womanize i'm not good at it and then um next thing happens now i just thought so i might as well write so i started writing i wrote twenty thousand words of what is now I think like a white man and in about four days and then as I was leaving Las Vegas I realized that they were all rubbish because it was just preachy stuff about being a black person in the corporate world that I got to Atlanta I wrote something similar in about three days and I deleted them again because I realized they were all rubbish it's when I got to Las to Miami sat down on South Beach and I know this is not a typical writer's story at all writers normally <laughs> hard up the cash I sound quite spoiled but it's when I got to Miami that I figured it out that I need to write this I need to enjoy writing this, so I decided to write it as a satire, drop my own name and let create a character, um, this professor of white people studies, who <laughs> claims to know everything and he's flawlessly offensive, this flawlessly offensive man who just says the most incendiary stuff, but it still rings true, that as much as you might hate how he's saying it or so, 
you will know that what he's saying here, the advice is perverse as it sounds, mm. it is true. This is how this game works. So, um, yeah, so I created uh, Boulet White Law, or Boulet White Law created me, who knows? <laughs> and yeah, and here we are today. Wow. I, I, Thanks to this. Yeah, I hadn't realized Thanks the entire, to this movement uh, from Vegas to Miami. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the whole United States somehow contributed to the making of this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazy places in the United States too. You'll be amazed where that book took me. Uh, yeah, it was it was fun to write. It was it was interesting to write because it was it was again it's an element. It comes from it, the experiences. It's a book that permeates from the experiences of hardship and the hard-nosed nature of the corporate world. And I could not yeah. write something that would make it more jarring to read or more boring, to m make that life more boring. I wanted to write something that would make your blood rush and laugh and excite you or so, even though you're talking about very, very harsh subjects or so that you're, you're writing about. You're writing about racism. There's sometimes where you're even joking about genocide in a particular book or so. And, um, and, but for some, not in a harsh way, but it's just the way in which you phrase things. And or I was phrasing things or so, mm. and I found that it connected not it connected with me because I have a very dark mind, but I found that it connected with readers quite well, and they seemed to appreciate it. And there was nothing like it at the time. I still don't think there is, um, but yeah, and we are where we are. Mm, thanks, and, and yeah, I think as you mentioned there, one of the one of the key things about the book is, you know, so it's not a narrative story. It's it's um, a, a spoof or possibly sarcastic but you know it's a parody in a way of, of a self-help book so you know it's yes, it it's, is, it's yeah. broken down in this in this kind of structure that allows um it doesn't need to you know read continuously like an unfolding narrative but um has these moments of of you know sharp inflection about how to how to how to get yourself forward in a workplace and you know it's it's almost like a, it's quite machiavellian right it's like how how do you kind of manipulate other people how you climb your way to the top even if it means like <laughs> suppressing your own feelings for a moment um but it, it it's kind of cutthroat in that way um but also isn't isn't you know it's not the best example of how to be your true self so so wondering about all these like layers that you build in there and and um, you know, you kind of pack it with different ways of, um, uh, you know, truth is a slippery thing, right? As you're going through this. It's, it is. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It is. Yeah. I think your description of it, Cliff, is a hundred percent right. It is very Machiavellian. It is almost the objective when I started, um, when I started writing it was one of the objectives was to write, if I was writing Machiavelli's most famous text, which is of course the Prince and, um, where he's explaining how to how to accrue and maintain power and everything else and what to do. I just thought if I was writing it for somebody who was working in the professional realm, who had the, um, of course, working in the professional realm is three-dimensional chess. It is difficult for everybody. Once you throw race into the mix, it becomes significantly more difficult. It becomes four-dimensional chess. So if I was writing that for somebody who was an other, who was an outsider, who was a black person in a predominantly white environment or so, um, or white, middle, white upper middle class male dominated environment. Um, what would you? How would I write it? And I thought that's what I was trying to do to really just cut through everything, expose, um, expose the um, the fallacies and the folly, and um, at the same time make people laugh and hopefully make a bit of money for myself. Yeah. I think we've achieved most of those things, other than the money thing side of things. So we'll see how it goes. And <laughs> praise <laughs> me, guys. I need all the help I can. So yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's where we are. 
Well, yeah, thank you so much for that. And I, 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 not to drift away from it, but both, you know, Cliff and I had a question because we were obviously we were, we were reading about your background and what you're doing. And we had a question. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Black British Writers Guild? And does it somehow like lead into it? Does it stem from this book? Is it how you got involved in it? Or yeah, if you could just explain to us a little bit more. Yeah, it's a good thing. So the Black Writers Guild is an organization that was founded about about three months ago. Mm. Um, it was founded by several of us. I'm one of the founders, myself, okay. one of the founding members, as opposed to say, but I'm not the George Washington of the whole thing or so. Um, it's myself, uh, a lady called Afua Hirsch, a, a, a lady called um, Charmaine Lovegrove, a gentleman called Simeon Brown, and a gentleman called Derek Owusu. We saw what was happening in society at a particular time. Yeah. We noticed there was... We were concerned about several things. We not we had a long stand. I had a long stand idea. Um, I mentioned to other people about that there should be a collective for black writers in Britain, and um, so we came together and had the discussion about what we should do. We about what we should do, and we just thought we should set up a black writers collective. And then we had this Zoom meeting the following day after the idea was floated a bit wider, um, and then uh, we were expecting about thirty, maybe forty people. Wow. Uh, within the following day, we had about 210 people on the Zoom call, Great. which oh my was, was completely, completely unexpected. All of the black British writers, all of them eager to speak. And we had a discussion about everything. And then we decided that the best thing for us to do would be to establish a writers guild that would champion the interests of black writers, give us a collective voice on the on the on the on the national stage, and create an ecosphere of um, a serious ecosphere for us to actually do well, to pro, to um, to prosper in this industry, and so on and so forth, and then um, to prosper in this industry, but also to to help this society better understand and eradicate racism, and so that's what we came to do, to get collectively to do, and that's where we yeah. are right now, and. Um, yeah, so it's still very, very early days, but we we have. I'm proud to say we've achieved so much in such a short period of time. Um, we've met most of the big publishers. We've established um, the guild formally. Um, we've uh, we have uh, written a very, very ground shaking, highly original um, demand letter for um, the various publishers and the industry. Um, we've done a lot. We've we've been busy people, and given that no one's working on it full yeah. time. Um, I'm, I'm proud of the achievements. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. That sounds fantastic. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, a quick question. What's the demographic? Do you find that there's all different ages and the news, what, was it spread by like word of mouth? I'm very curious. It was, yes, good question. It was 100% word of mouth. I mean, totally word Insane. of mouth. Insane. I love it. We, yeah. Yeah, we, we contacted... Um, we it was just via WhatsApp. It was one note that went round to WhatsApp, and it just spread like wildfire. Um, I would say it spread like the coronavirus, but that would be an inappropriate thing to say. Yeah, too um, soon. It's way too right, soon. Really wide It's way too soon. It's way too soon. Yeah. So um, it spread anyway, like syphilis. That's not too soon. That's that's established. That was the clip. That passes the um, the clip political correctness test. Um, but yeah. So um, yeah. So. So what it happened was that, um, so yeah, so and that was that. So it was via word of mouth. The demographic is, we don't care what it is that you write, who it is you write for, whether you're writing for the biggest publisher, whether you're writing for yourself, uh, whether you're publishing yourself, uh, whether you have one reader, whether you have one billion readers or so, it doesn't matter. We want all black writers to come together to speak with one collective voice and try and champion our interest 
and come up with a range of ideas to promote our work and um, help this society move the needle on this very enduring problem we call racism um, that blights the lives yeah. of so many and uh, we just need to find a way to, to, to navigate our way through it because look, we are all collectively going to be living together in this society for as long as possible and uh, for as long as we live or so before we wipe ourselves out with capitalism and global warming and I say that as a capitalist who drives a diesel car at the moment or so uh, but before we wipe ourselves out or so whatever it might be we are going to be here together this is home and this is what we're building we need to yeah. find a way to make it as, as, as buoyant and beautiful for all of us and the Black Writers Guild will do its bit to help in that regard. And hopefully, once again, we are a commercial outfit, as in every writer is a commercial entity. And um, hopefully we'll make some profits for ourselves too at the same time. Again, pray for us. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. Love all the energy behind that. And after only three months <laughs> as well. You. Good luck to you. Yeah, less than three months. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Well, I pivot yet again uh to a different hat that you you wear and that's that's one of a, of a broadcaster and um you know we 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 thought you know a few months ago we we wanted to have you on um on the show um and uh and it, i mean it's been a massively busy time and and because you're a broadcaster you're often contacted by the television networks or the, the papers um you know to sit on panels and to discuss politics um race racism uh, and you know we're often seeing um, you know I'm I'm sitting in my my lounge at home and there's Nelson on television again and it's um, uh, fantastic. <laughs> well, it's, you know it's it's fantastic that one develops um, a professional reputation of being consistently engaged um, and and, um, and and a spokesperson, somebody who can look at um, and 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 comment on um, things as they're happening. Um, and and I wanted to ask, oh, well, we we both because Jen and I had pre-meet about it. Um, wanted to ask you, yeah, you know, we're we're three months on since this sort of um, most recent spark um, in the U.S., also in the U.K. and worldwide, and wanted to kind of hear your your thoughts and and commentary on um, have have those three months that have elapsed. Um, since George Floyd, um, been sort of really productive months. You know, have have some of the things that were promised or um, things that people, you know, said they would look at. Have, have, has has that some of that work happened? Um, just kind of want to want to get a sense from you as to to how we're um, how you know we as a society are kind of sitting at the moment. So I think that it's a good point. So there's a couple of things. Let's first of all speak about George Floyd, and then we'll come on to how society's reacted, and then we'll come on to uh, yeah, but then we'll go to how society, particularly in the yeah, how society at large has has, has reacted, both in the public space and the private space. Sorry, they're, now, they're huge George questions. Happened, but... George... <laughs> yeah, they're, no, it's totally fine. They're totally fine. No, nothing a giant can't handle. <laughs> um, so 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 George Floyd is is lynched. For the whole world to see. The whole world saw an 8 minute and 46 second lynching video um, in real time. It re not in real time, but um, just in, on video. And it was the most disgusting thing I think I'd ever seen. Mm. And it was, I have actually not seen the whole thing till this very day. I saw, I saw, I, I was kind of not ambushed by just scrolling by Instagram. And then uh, there was a video and somebody just said, this is absolutely terrible. And of course, whenever you see a train crash or go ready for girls, or a car crash, you want to slow down and watch and see what happens. And um, mm. 
I just slowed down. I just clicked into it and watched, and I thought, "This is this is a bit rough. This is crazy. Yeah. This is crazy." And then, as opposed to put the whole eight minutes there, they just fast forwarded it to the last couple of minutes, and then bingo! I just saw that um, the man was dead. And then at the end, that, and then evidently myself being, I don't think it's unnatural. I actually cried. I just sat there. I felt tears running down my face. Yeah. And I, it felt like this was this. I'd been violated. And again, so as it's a human thing, it's this human thing we call empathy, um, and and also to partly this human thing we call emotion, that when you see somebody who would be identified as looking like you, even though George Floyd and I don't look like at all, he was a handsome brother, I can't blame him, I can't boast of those qualities, but when you see um, somebody like a George Floyd um, happening and you're a black person you're watching it it is a very traumatic experience and um, so that happened yeah. and I, I was not shocked when people took to the streets even in the COVID times and everything that horrible that has been happening and the death rates and everything else I was not shocked that people took to the streets because if people didn't take to the streets if people didn't riot if people didn't respond in the way in which they did respond or so it would have meant that it would have been a worse thing because it meant that people have been desensitised that thing and it had become normal so that happens. Then the thing that was warming is that it wasn't just black people who you'd expect to, of course, respond that way. It went a lot further, a lot wider in society. Corporations, um, companies, normal people, everybody was calling for change. Calling that people were expecting everybody who had any degree of influence to do something. And then companies start to roll out different things. First, there was the black box thing. Um, that everybody did, which Trupital I thought was a little bit in retrospect was kind of ridiculous, but um, but it but again it was a sign people wanted people to show to perform allyship, and then once you performed allyship, also they can use that to hold you to account, yeah. which was which was what the point was. Um, so, and I think also to the those boxes, although it may feel a little bit ridiculous, it was a good way of marketing the actual issue. Because once you've marketed the issue, you help create a critical mass for the issue or so. And once you've established a critical mass, you can then turn around and actually create change. In fact, mm. a critical mass is a prerequisite for wholesale change. And um, so, yeah, so corporations, if I take, for example, the Black Writers Guild, the response from the publishers was swift and urgent. They wanted to, once we wrote our letter, which happened in the backdrop of George Floyd, mm -hmm. um, they wanted to meet us. And um, we met with all of them, and then we are currently doing some work with them right now to change things and make sure the publishing is more inclusive and more aware of its duties amongst other things. And that uh, we're going to have a persistent, ongoing relationship with them. And that's been happening in different realms here and there. Uh, and here and there, it's happening in media, it's happening in banking, it's happening in different places. That the George Floyd effect has been that people have been willing, able, and open to talk about their experiences of race. Mm. I wrote a book on race about a year ago. It came out about a year ago, about a year and three months ago. It is not easy when you put your face on television talking about race. It is really not easy, particularly when it comes from yeah. somebody of my sort of background, blue chip professional, high level blue chip professional. So going on somewhere talking about race with a satirical book to back up and sell. So it is not easy. This made that job that little bit more understandable as to why we do these things. But it didn't make it. It's not the end of the full end of the road because, as bad and as horrific as George Floyd was, we now have Jacob Blake on our hands, which was again, yeah. black man shot yeah. in the back seven times for the entire world to see. And then in the aftermath of that, also you've got two young gentlemen who were killed by a seventeen-year-old of an AR-15. You've got 
still in London, for example, stop and search at levels that cannot really be justified in the slightest bit or so. Um, you've even got, we're lucky that we don't have police at the level of, we're holding the level of arms that the Americans do. But, I mean, we've seen situations in which a gentleman was actually tased, seriously tased in a petrol station as his son was looking on screaming, his toddler son was looking on screaming. This is serious stuff. And the problem with it is that it keeps happening persistently to one demographic. Mm. And yeah. it's the demographic that has been dehumanized the most, literally dehumanized, literally to a point where the subjugation of black people was that uh, it was predicated after a while upon the fact that these are not even human beings. Um, so in order to actually establish equal rights or everything else, black people, we had to literally establish the fact that we were human beings, equal human beings. So there's a lot to it. There's a lot going on. Um, there is some change. But when it comes to these sorts of things, also there's some change. There's there's a bit of opportunism floating in the air too at the same time. Um, but but where there comes when it comes to these sorts of moments or so, sadly, as we've come to expect, there's a, another one is not round is not far around the corner. And yeah. the the hope the hope is that your number is never called or the number of somebody that you know and love is never is never that person because. Sometimes it's easy, like Jake, I don't like the concept, I know I'm rambling a bit, but I don't like the concept in which African Americans have to go on TV and reassert the, and provide comfort to the state, grieving African Americans have to go on TV and provide comfort to the status quo. So for example, Jacob Blake's mother, Jacob Blake was a man who was shot in the back about two days ago by the police. He's, he was paralyzed from the waist down, he's lucky he didn't lose his life. He was paralyzed from the waist down and he's actually handcuffed to a to his hospital bed right now as we record this. So Jacob Blake's mother was on TV last night and she had to almost perform forgiveness and say that she forgives the man who shot her son seven times in the back, which is impossible for any parent to do mm. within 24 hours to forgive. It's just, it's, it's, it's humanly impossible. But it's a necessity that black, that black people are, that's put upon them because number one, um, the there's legal dubiousnesses around it in which um, if you turn around and you rock the boat a little bit, where there's any settlement which it might, which is more likely to boil down to, they could throw you under the bus and give you peanuts or so. Literally, I've seen a fan man who's a gentleman who was killed whilst he was in his whilst he was in his house and they gave him ten dollars. Literally, they gave his family $10. So that's how rough these things can be. So look, I've rambled on for a long time, but I just really feel that there's, a, there's so much to it. It's such a deep and profound question that, um, I'm, who knows, who knows? It, it, may, it might need addressing in longer format. It might, who knows? I'm not going to, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. There we go. Yeah, no, there's so much there and there's so much to unpack. Um, and... There's one, I mean, there's so many questions that I have for you, but one thing that I did want to touch on was, you know, you're, you're bringing up obviously with George Floyd in the US, and then we're also talking about, you know, the UK, where, I mean, all three of us are here. Um, and I was wondering whether, you know, we could discuss a little bit more this difference um, or, you know, the similarities between the UK and the US. There's, a shared language of English, but apart from that, you know, there's so many, there's so many different situations from an economic education um, perspective. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe you could expand on that, please, and share with us, Nels. It's a very good question, actually. I would say, the, so, yeah, the UK and the US are, when it comes to the treatment of ethnic minorities, 
and, and ethnic minority is a very broad term, so I sometimes I like to separate them out because different ethnic minorities get treated differently. Um, so when it comes to our, our focus on black people, because hey, 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 you won't believe what, what my background is. But anyway, but, um, but, so, but if you look at it, right, so um, when it comes to black people, for example, um, or if you just speak about ethnic minorities, when you look at the parallels, you have a dispute with your employer in the UK if you're an ethnic minority, and you take that to a tribunal and say that you want to bring a race discrimination case forward against your employer. Yeah. They are, on average, they are successful 50, They are successful 15% of the time. Wow. In, in America, at the federal level, such cases are successful 16% of the time. So you see, I mean, it's not entirely much, two entirely different systems, outcomes the same. When you're looking at unemployment, for example, unemployment in America for African-Americans runs at double the rate as it rate, at the, at the rate it runs for, um, for, for European Americans or white Americans. Mm. The exact same thing occurs in the UK. In America, they, they, they incarcerate a very, very significant number of their black population, of their, of their population of African descent. Britain actually incarcerates a higher percentage of its black population in the UK. Really? You would never know that. I do not that. know that. Britain, I know that Britain, now the, the only difference is that Britain, black Britain is a smaller population than, um, than African Americans, than African Americans by, by far. So African Americans, I can't remember the exact number, um, but yeah, but they make up a very, very vast, their, their, their demographic is a lot bigger, I think it's nearly 10 times bigger than, um, than the black British population. Actually, I think it's about 40 million people, so that's a lot bigger. Uh, yeah, so it's nearly, we're about, f- you know, collectively, um, we're about 4.5 million, that's three million um, black and mixed race black people, collectively. So when you look at these statistics, it is very, very worrying. And even again, when yeah. you look at the police's attitude, stop and frisk, as they call it in America or so, the predominant victims of stop and frisk in America are the predominant victims of stop and search in the UK. If you look at who police is most likely to use force against, it's the same demographic. It's the exact same demographic. If you look at um, educational outcomes or so, or assumptions about the perceived intellect or the perceived intellect of black people, it's the exact same assumptions or so now that might not be a surprise as you think given that um these are anglo um um anglo anglo saxon or northwestern european dominated societies or so so the thinking of the systems are not entirely a million miles away from each other but that uh, and so and the outcomes aren't as different as you like to think so yeah so the the key difference between the uk for and the us is that the UK has is a, is a, is a, from a racial perspective. The UK is a society of much wider extremes. In the mm. so, sorry, the US is a society of much wider extremes. In the US, you can be extremely successful, or you could find yourself in the in the in the rot of um, the American prison system quite quite easily. Mm. In the UK, you can be in the UK once again too a success tends to be a lot more moderate yeah. or so. Um, one generational success or so. So we don't have the... Um, uh, we've got... I mean, you've got the football stars or so, but 
compared to the basketball players in the United States of America, British footballers are paupers. You've got the professional class, but most professional class black people or so, um, myself included, in fact, myself prominently included, have one eye on the flight to America. So if you take a look at it, a lot of the big black British act actors, for example, mm -hmm. they will, these guys, some of them are bus drivers in the UK, and then they hop over to America and they're Oscar winners. They can't get roles in Britain, but they go to America and they're Oscar contenders. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the, 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 the huge difference over there, and the huge difference. And I think that um, it's, there are two societies where ethnic minorities, particularly black people, particularly black people who are descendants of a British and American slavery, which is, again, a very unique system, yeah. a very unique experience, because these are people... So my name is Nels Abbey. I'm a British Nigerian writer. I can tell you... So Nigeria is, of course, a British construct, but I can tell you which ethnic group I come from in Nigeria. So if I can go to a place called Wari, which is, the, which is in the Niger Delta, and I know that my um, fathers, 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 going back infinitely times, and my, and my maternal parents or so, that this was the land that they inhabited. And when I walk around these places, I can actually see people who, when they walk towards me, they'll say, oh, what's your name? And what was your mother's name? Oh, yeah, your mother's name was her surname. And then you say, my mother's surname was this. I'm not going to say it out loud because I don't want somebody to hack my, my sort code account number before I know it. But then, um, <laughs> because, and then, um, and once they say that also, and then you ask those questions, and then they say, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your mother and my mother, they're related, we are cousins. And then you take a look at that person and it dawns on you that he's not lying, that I see the similarity already. And it might sound crazy, but you see that. But when it comes to African-Americans or, um, or people from, from the, or who, people who were enslaved in the Caribbean, uh, people, people who were enslaved under the Union Jack in the Caribbean, actually also to must be clear that two thirds of the time in which African-Americans were enslaved in America, they were enslaved under the Union Jack so the profits extracted from them were prone to, most of them was going back to the United Kingdom, or what we now call, yeah, to what we today call the United Kingdom. But the key thing here is this, is that those guys are in such a unique situation because they, till this day, carry the names of their, of their enslavers. They have been branded for life and their children's children are branded. So if you meet somebody with a surname, say, um, I'm trying to figure somebody who I don't, a surname of somebody who I don't know pretty quickly, um, Cumberbatch, very unique name or so. You meet a black person with a surname Cumberbatch or so, you just know that you're meeting somebody who is descendant of a, who is, uh, I'm not going to pick on anybody famous over here, but you're meeting somebody who whose forebears or so was enslaved by a, likely to be a Scottish or an English gentleman who's had the surname Cumberbatch and they gave him that surname. Mm. And they still are stamped with those names to this mm. day. If those guys go back to Africa tomorrow, they still don't know which part of Africa they're going to. They can do all these DNA tests or so, but it doesn't really link you back to it. So it's a huge travesty. So anyway, but yeah, so it's a tough, tough experience that we're trying to, if we're not trying to get, be, we're trying to get beyond it, but at the same time, we're trying to learn from it in order to take it forward. Yeah, th I mean, there's so much there. Thank you, Nels, because uh, the, the, it's such a complex um, uh, subject and, and has... Um, uh, so many different facets that one can unpick, and I, I was just thinking. I mean, maybe the only way we we can do that is to like to have a a check in with you like three months or six months from now, and and see 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 where we are. Um, so really, really sure. appreciate you kind yeah. of taking us through all those different things and 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 actually putting yeah, some facts absolutely. out there. 
some facts that really um, really are quite shocking. But we're, we're we're coming up on time. I'm sorry. Um, so so we're gonna we're gonna end by by asking you the question that we ask all of our guests, um, which is what kind of um, creative inspiration do you have for our listeners? It's a very very good question, actually. What creative inspiration do I have for your <laughs> listeners? Could you break that down for me just a tiny bit more? And I'll just I'll just I'll give you something amazing. I'll give this something amazing. Just tell me exactly what you mean. Break it down for me a bit more. What can I? What inspiration do you mean? Ah, oh, you know, I. You're the first one who's challenging us back. <laughs> um, but let me put it to you this way, right? You know, you've got different types of inspiration. Sometimes I just listen to a song and I just got a little skip to my step and I'm running along. But sometimes I want something, you know, a little bit of a maybe a bit of a tagline or something that I do that could inspire other people. I'll never forget when I shared with Cliff my personal creative inspiration on our first episode. <laughs> and I said it was permission to hover. And Cliff understood that as permission to hoover. But <laughs> to this day, Fair it's just enough. like letting ideas, <laughs> um, letting ideas come to mind and then picking them up, you know, when the time is right. That was mine. So that's my inspo over to you. Does that help? I would leave. Yeah, it really does. I <laughs> would leave you with one of my. It really does. It really does, Jennifer. But I would leave you in terms of creative inspiration. Um, I one of my favorite. I'll leave you with one of my favorite rap lyrics, and I'm embarrassed to say that it's actually by somebody who is quite in. Who's become quite of a jackass, a bit of a jackass in recent times. Um, it's a lyric by Kanye West, <laughs> and it was on his first album, and it's a lyric that really inspires me. Also, um, that pushes me forward, and it goes as follows. Now I can let these dream killers kill my self-esteem or use my arrogance as esteem to power my dreams. I think I'm going to leave it at that, actually. <laughs> Do you know why? Because I think that the rest of it gets a little bit ridiculous. It's still <laughs> but I think, I, think, I, think I'll leave it, I think I'll leave it at that. I really enjoy those I just It's a lyric that really inspires me also because I really just think to myself that, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's something that really, um, that really just speaks to me or so. Yeah, but you get the door slammed in your face every now and then. You meet a bunch of dream killers. You meet people. Um, but you, but by, by virtue of the fact that you keep pressing on and keep moving on and you let these, 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 um, whether it's the, gate, the gatekeepers, the um, dream killers, whoever else it might be or so, that could really and truly, I don't know, damage your day or do anything else. Um, I think the key thing is that you just use them to inspire you. You look forward yeah. to what they will look like once you're getting where you want to go to. And I think that I hope that inspires somebody creatively. And if it doesn't or so, then I always say go and listen to Ice Cube's first album, which is called Death Certificate, and that will inspire <laughs> you to become to, to do to do something. To do something with your time. So there we go. I hope I hope it did inspire somebody because um yeah, I probably should have come a bit better prepared for that one. No, I get it. I feel it. Excellent. It resonates. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for for um, <laughs> maintaining my my self esteem and shaving my blushes, <laughs> sparing my blushes. But there we go. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, Nels, if people want to find out more about what you do and what are you're up to, they can. Yeah, there's. I'm one Google search away. Uh, for better, for worse. <laughs> but um, but yeah, they can also. Um, I'm, I'm I'm simple to find on Instagram and um. And on Twitter, it's just at Nels Abbey, which is at N-E-L-S-A-B-B-E-Y. And you will find me 
um, you'll find me or so. Send me your best wishes. And um, yeah, perfect. <laughs> That's you. awesome. And uh, and not so long ago, the soft cover version of Think Like a White Man was was published. Yeah. So everyone can go and pick that up um, at your favorite local bookseller. Yep, at your favorite non-racist bookseller. <laughs> That's right. So there we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, can people find out also about the Black British Writers Guild? Um, yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's very yeah. important, actually. Yes, that's 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 just as important as the book. So if you go to um, theblackwritersguild.com and you'll find us there. The black the blackwritersguild.com and you'll find us there. If you want to join, there's directions there. It's simply just dropping us an email and we will be in touch with you. Uh, we will welcome you or so. And uh, yeah, I think it's important. That's very, very important that everybody come together collectively and we all work together and try and build a better world for our, for ourselves collectively. Yeah. I love that. That's great. Yeah, I mean... Me too. Amazing, amazing um, community building project. It's really, really good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really hope it... I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I think it's the beginning of something big. Yeah. Well, yeah. Nels... Thank you so much for no, being with so us. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a, Jennifer Cliff. It's been an absolute delight being with you. And um, yeah, thank you very Wonderful. much. And thank thanks, you. thank you, and thanks to our listeners for listening. And do join us next time for more creative chat. Bye. Yeah. Thank you. Bye.